Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Uh, welcome to the first episode of the New Year of the George Poo Show. I'm your host, George Poo, together with our co-host, Soham. Hey, Soham, what did you do for the Christmas and the holiday season? Hey, George. Yeah, I also didn't do too much. I just got a new puppy, so I've just been like trying to train him right now. And uh, he's not potty trained yet, so that's been a lot of fun. <laughs> just having to clean up after him. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I went to uh, Vancouver, and it's pretty dead there. Um, for those of you listening in Vancouver, it rains a lot, so... Next year, I'll pick better vacation spots for sure. So many things happen. Like, so I'm like, today is like the second day of 2023. And it still feels weird to say that. Like, time has begun, has passed so fast. So I really want to do a segment where we share our biggest lessons we learned um, in 2022, which is a fun, exciting year full twists. So what is your biggest lessons? Let's start with that um, from 2022. Yeah, sure. Here. I'll put my accountant hat on for one minute. I think one of the biggest lessons that 2022 kind of showed us is that like valuation still does matter. You know, like what 2020, 2021 was like was, you know, companies kind of had like almost an unlimited runway. They were just able to, you know, spend their way out of problems they had. They, they didn't really care about being lean, things like that. But like now, like we're seeing that, yeah, people are starting to like, you know, like buckle down with like these rising interest rates. People want to like make sure what they're investing in, like there's value in itself, right? Like how like Elon's come out with like Twitter and things like that. It's kind of like sparked a new wave of, you know, like letting a lot of employees go that weren't really contributing as much to firms. Like we saw Meta do it. I think Amazon as well. And I know Tesla announced they might be doing it soon as well. So that's probably one of my biggest lessons. What about you, George? There's so many lessons. But before we get to that, like, do you think the layoffs are just part of the cycle? Do you think they also happen because companies are being valued for too high? And is it because just like the high valuation, the game, the zero interest game, just not sustainable as we look back at the past couple of years? No, I think that's exactly that. I think what the zero interest rates kind of cycle did for us was companies just want to like invest in very risky projects because there wasn't that much of risk to take on those projects, right? Because like it was cheap to take out money. And so now that like interest rates are getting higher, we're seeing a correction, not only of like their valuation itself, we're seeing correction of talent. Like, you know, companies overhired a lot because they wanted to like take on all these random projects that they weren't even like the best position to be able to take on. And then we're seeing now that like there's consequences to not running their company like completely efficiently, like not worrying about cash flow has consequences. And that's kind of like one of the biggest things I think 2022 showed us. And for yourself or the work that you've been doing for 2022, what are the main takeaways that you kind of have? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, in terms of like the work I've been doing, like, yeah, one of the craziest things was about, uh, you know, we just saw what happened with SPF, right? Like just like a couple of weeks ago. I think now he's, you know, arrested. So it's starting to, it's still ongoing, but yeah, like the due diligence part is becoming important. Like, you know, like someone who works in big four, that's like a big part of our like job and things like that. Right. But that was something that was kind of being skipped at a lot of places. Like, you know, like VCs were just signing as soon as they like saw a company and they kind of liked the idea. Like we're seeing now, like, you know, that due diligence popping off and stuff like that. So I think that's going to be pretty interesting. I think 2023 is going to be a good time in terms of like taking time before you're investing in companies and things like that. Yeah. I really want to share my tech experience in 2022. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, I have a few big takeaways from like working a year, a crazy year of 2022, many ups and downs. I think my first takeaway is really just depending on yourself. If you're a startup founder, if you are an entrepreneur, if you are someone who's like looking up on your own, looking to become an entrepreneur, I think that is the biggest takeaway. So, you know, in 2022, there were many times where I thought, you know, I could have relied on other entrepreneurs. For example, like I was offered like a CEO at a young rising, up and rising tech startup. 
that has raised, you know, like tens of millions of dollars. So I thought, you know, that might be reliable at times. But now that startup is basically laying off and, and they're not pulling through. So it's just a difference of how short the time frame was. And maybe like six months from, you know, when I got the offer and when they were starting to go down. So mm-hmm. that was a big lesson. Also, I think big lessons is like trusting experience in tech. We have to remember 2022, three, and maybe even four will be years that, you know, you just have to depend on yourself. So I had people with decades of experience who, who I, you know, I, I tend to work with. Turns out they're not with what I thought it would be in terms of experience and connections. And when they try to raise capital, there's a big pushbacks from their friends and investors, right? So even they couldn't raise capital. So I was kind of blindsided by that. And I thought, you know, people with more experience can actually make more things happen. But I think when you're a young founder, when you're an entrepreneur, people actually trust what you're saying, what you're building and a lot more seriously because you're doing actually something concrete. So I think that's a big thing uh, is depending on yourself. And if you're an entrepreneur, um, definitely think about depending on yourself and not depending on something that's like, no flamboyant or whatever that's too good to be true, which is coming to my second point. Second point is don't trust things are too good to be true. And I think that's super real for those three years as well, right? If you have an investor promising you something, especially those three years, don't believe a word of it. Do your due diligence um, and really be careful about pushing them to the point where they will make decision. For example, if you're raising capital and this investor says, okay, I want in for this amount, right? Press them to sign LOI. Right, a little bit of intent. Uh, even though like they might not do it, but just by pushing them to do it, you'll see who's serious and who's not. So yeah. that's something really clarifying as well. And I think you know, just like don't trust people opportunities like too good to be true. There aren't such things in twenty twenty two, three and four. Um, at least in my opinion, there aren't things that are too good to be true. Everyone's having a hard time, so don't trust things that are just too good to be true. My third point is like I think in those two years, twenty twenty two and this year. I think as a founder, as an entrepreneur, press for accountability of your team. When you when mm. we were in 2021, there were a lot of like jumping ships happen. Engineers would jump from one company to another, product managers, everyone, right? Like even from the customer success associates, they, they all, everyone jumps. And I think they have a lot of bargaining power in terms of races and stuff. And because the economy was good you know, and everyone's having a good time. But I do think in 2023, press accountability for your team. Don't just expect things to be the same as 2022. Uh, if they're not doing something, you know, like point it out. If they're slow on something, point it out, right? Like point out nicely, obviously. If you think they're not pushing as much harder, do it. Because, you know, like this is the year where entrepreneurs, companies, startups, enterprises, you have the leverage as opposed to like, you know, getting people to work more. So don't allow quiet quitting if you can, of course, on a company perspective. And that's honestly the three biggest takeaways. And I think let's summarize the key moments and key takeaways for 2022. What are some most memorable moments for you from? Before memorable moments, I also just want to want to hit that. Yeah, I definitely agree about, yeah, like pressing accountability that quiet quitting in a startup just is not going to work at all, right? So that's definitely something I think is going to be really important uh, going into 2023. And then like bridging on that, like for 2022, summarizing everything that happened, I think the biggest thing was, I think we definitely talked about is the war. Like, I remember uh, when Ukraine and Russia war first got announced, how scared I was. Like, you know, if it was going to be a World War Three, everything like that. It's become, it's. I feel like it's kind of died down in the press now, but it's still ongoing. It's still very active, which is a pretty scary time. Yeah, it's very brutal still mm-hmm. in Ukraine, especially. Right? You see bad things happen on a day-to-day basis yeah. that, that shouldn't be happening in this day and age. And the ramifications we're seeing is kind of uh, crazy because we see that like Europe kind of got exposed that 
they love to brag about the fact that they themselves didn't like you know frack for oil and all these other kind of things about like gas and things but you know they just kind of outsourced their guilt and just like kept buying from russia and now like when russia like they couldn't even put sanctions on russia like as strict as they wanted because they're so dependent for heat and things like that from russia right so i think this war has kind of like shown a lot of the true colors like you know like ukraine and russia combined have like what 25 percent of the world's wheat population in terms of exports as well so it's become like really important we're seeing that you know, like these smaller countries like ukraine wasn't really a country you think of much in terms of world economy but they they hold a major point and power as well so that was definitely interesting i think another big one was like you know like elon buying twitter i think everyone was like paying attention to that like they had full eyes open because of guess how flamboyant elon also is when it comes to things like that but that was definitely something really crazy and i him kind of exposing the twitter files and seeing that there was like active censorship towards the right side and like um things like that that was pretty insane and i think the last one like just spf's meltdown right like everything that happened at ftx was just i don't know how a company that big was able to get that big without any kind of proper due diligence being taken yeah let's go back to the first part which is the ukraine russia war I think my first thought of it was also scared. Um, although knowing that, I mean, knowing I know Biden said he's not going to get involved in the war, not directly involved, like not sending the troops, American troops on the ground. But what they did, you know, is basically supplying Ukraine as much as it could. But I think now we're at a standstill. I think we are like, what, almost 10, 12 months into the war and it doesn't have any end in sight. And I feel like it's, mm-hmm. it's dragging on further. The gas prices, diesel prices are still high. And, you know, I still drive a diesel car. Um, it's environmental friendly, but it's using diesel. Anyways, so it's, it's been super expensive. So that, that's at least on the consumer side of it, right? And on the world side, like we can't just pretend that a war like this is not happening between, you know, two big economies, right? And also with the U.S. and the West Europe closely involved, we can't just pretend that it's not happening under our eyes. And we can't just say predict the economy in 2023 or forward without looking back to this war. So um, really comes down to the end game. So what will the end game be, right? Like Zelensky and essentially Putin don't want to budge. There's no end in sight. And in Europe, the winter is already coming. People are, you know, running out of gas um, to heat their homes, right? So people are already protesting. We're only into January. There's still a couple more months of winter coming. So what do you think the next steps will be as we go into the war further? And what do you think the end game might be? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. It's so hard to predict just because you see that USA and NATO are kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Like they can't add Ukraine into NATO at all because of everything. Like that's a no-go for Russia completely. And like Russia, Putin has made it very abundantly clear that that is something he will not entertain at all. And so without that happening, if, you know, like USA and Europe kind of just like lay down and like stop funding Ukraine and Ukraine kind of has to say, okay, we, we give in, then it's incentivizing other people. Like it's incentivizing maybe China to go for Taiwan. It's incentivizing India to go for Kashmir. Like there's a lot of repercussions about the whole world is watching this basically to see how is NATO going to deal with Putin. And uh, he has to have consequences for everything that's happened. Right. But if the problem is again, like you said about the heating and everything like that, Europe is very reliant on Russia right now. So they can't even just enforce like economic sanctions to a level they want to just because of how ingrained they've become to Russia. And so I don't even know what the end goal here can be. Like, it just feels like uh, USA dealt a really bad hand by saying that we're going to be adding Ukraine to NATO. 
I think that was the first mistake that just swung all these dominoes down. Yeah, and let's not forget the European Union gave Russia a cap on the oil prices, right? It's just like we will buy your gas, but this is the cap, and Russia just rejected that completely and slapping Europe's face. And I think that's a big moment, in my opinion. I think how can you be so disconnected in the demand and supply curve? Like Europe depends on Russia for the gas, and that you're、mm-hmm. trying to cap it when you are ideologically against it. You're literally putting money and thinking into the war, right? And you're expecting them to、mm-hmm. say yes. So I feel like the slap in the face is just the latest drama in this like whole situation, and I feel like there's no win for Europe. Like the USA can do whatever it wants because it's not it's in another continent where Russia cannot touch. It's not neighbor to Russia, and it's not reliant on Russia. At least not not as big as Europe. So I feel like it's it's a really bad situation. My prediction is that I don't think it will end, at least in the first half of this year. I think in the second half we might see more development as like all sides are just drained. Energy-wise and and everything else, I think now, I think everyone just have too much ego on the line. They just don't want to、yeah. put out. I think everyone can see that too. So that's kind of my prediction for it. So yeah, for Elon buying Twitter. So like when he just announced it. So、um, what were your thoughts? Because that was before all the tech meltdown happened. I think he announced January or February, which is like a year ago. About so, what was your reaction first? At first, I thought it was a joke because I remember, like, right before Elon announced this, he was just going on Twitter and it's like,、uh, because for a while up until the whole Dogecoin and everything, Elon wasn't as active on Twitter, right? And then, like,、uh, in twenty twenty two, he just became super, super active. So I just thought him saying that was like a joke or something. And it comes out that he's like、uh, bought over ten percent of Twitter. And so now people are thinking, oh, he's going to join the board, everything like that. And he's like, nope, doing a whole hostile takeover. Agarwal is out. Everything like this, and I was just completely baffled because it's really crazy to see somebody buy a whole company that's worth almost fifty billion dollars at that time, right? Like、uh, at the peak value, I think it was like forty-four or forty-five. Like he bought it for. What about you, George? Yeah, I thought it was a joke either. I didn't know he was serious until I think until he signed the LOI or something. I think that was like, okay, this guy's serious, and I think it would make sense if the economy stayed where it is. It, it will be、mm-hmm. easy for him, Elon, Elon Musk, to raise additional capital for Twitter, right? Post IPO, you know, post secondary rounds, he can raise more rounds for the company and raise higher valuations. So easily make his money back. So it is. I would、mm-hmm. say it is a good decision. I think the challenge is that we're in a very different economy now. I mean, everyone knows that already, but consumers are less likely to spend money on Twitter, especially when they have so much other bills that are just coming up, right? I mean, everyone kind of knows about how consumers feel about you know when they're coming. Economic times gets tough, so I feel like it's a challenge. I think it's a it's not a miscalculation. I would say at a time it really was a really good decision, and I think、mm-hmm. he is forced to take it, which is unfortunate. I would just say based on the last quarter Q4 of 2022, seeing how much Tesla is impacted, I just feel like it's not worth it. But you know, of course, like it's hard, it's hard, really hard to judge. I think for him, it became completely about the actual like messaging. Like he actually did just want Twitter to become like kind of like a central place for like that town hall, right? He was seeing that it's not that anymore, because I don't think this was for any kind of profitability reasons. Like Twitter was not a company you're buying if, like, you know, you want it for like any kind of like financial incentives. So I hope everything works out well because I think like it was very noble. Like at the end of it, like the fact that Elon kind of like did that. Let's not forget like how transparent he is about how this company literally going on a big business, going for bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. I think for lots of companies, we're not seeing that level of transparency, but it's literally months or days until bankruptcy, right? I think many companies are like that that we do not know that we think is strong, that are currently private businesses, 
which we'll talk about later in a second, but I just feel like that's very important to just get it out there. I think definitely we're going to see bankruptcies coming in the next yeah. few months. I think most companies definitely have 12 months of runway. I don't think they'll have 16 months of runway. Unfortunately, I think we'll see about that unless they do large scale layoffs, which is another thing they don't want to do. So I think next let's come to the predictions for 2023, which we'll revisit definitely at the end of this year. So prediction, I think many other shows do this, but let's see who is going to be prosper and winning in 2023. And this can be any individuals, can be businesses, can be brands, it could be mm-hmm. you know countries, it could be anything. So, so what's your top pick for who's going to win? I think in terms of who's going to do well in 2023 are people that were kind of left with a lot of dry powder that, had, that kept up a lot of cash, like, you know, throughout 2022 and were very just conservative with like not putting any money in the market. I think people that still have cash can do really well because a lot of businesses that have like lost a lot of their valuation, like 50 plus percent of their valuation, they're still good fundamental businesses. They just become like a the market itself has changed, right? But like the business itself hasn't changed. So people that have the cash to be able to start putting money in, like you make money during a bear market, right? Not during a bull market. That's kind of the old adage. So I think those people will definitely do well. I think people that, you know, like investing in debt and like credits and stuff like that, like bond investors, I think they're going to do extremely well just because we're seeing that interest rates are rising and people that have been able to just do like the arithmetic and the math for bonds will be able to do even better now, I think. And lastly, I think this is something we talked about a little bit earlier too. I think ChatGPT and Microsoft are going to be big winners too, right? Just because of everything that, like the power that ChatGPT has and apparently it's going to come to a Microsoft search engine. Like, you know, the joke was always Bing is a distant second, but they might be able to beat Google like with ChatGPT. It's going to be interesting to see. I think Microsoft definitely made a strategic investment. When they first announced this deal, I was like, okay, why is Microsoft investing so much into OpenAI? I, I think it was $100 million or, or even a billion back then, the contract mm-hmm. at least. So I was really shocked to see it. I was like, okay, why is it putting that much money to do nonprofit work? And OpenAI really started to become, it was started to be a nonprofit. Now it's a for-profit that owns a nonprofit. So it's definitely the smart move, I would say. It's like, you shouldn't be doing AI for charity. I echo you with that, Soham. I think... Google, I think the thing is Google is doing so many things on a side or in shadows that we don't know. Mm-hmm. So I, I will be really be curious to see like what will their response be. But I think the model of like how search is changing. I think people have been talking about that for a long time about how search is going to be different, right? For example, if you have some sort of glasses on your face that you can just connect to your mind and you can search or you can think of something in your mind or the AI Google Assistant or you know Microsoft or you know Amazon Echo. Alexa, right? That those are already changing how people are searching. So I think Google definitely being a loser here. I don't think they can adjust their ad model to still be working like away from SEO and adapt to ChatGPT. I feel like it's like a huge, huge thing. And I, I was using Notion, Notion for my note taking. And even Notion has a Notion AI. I think maybe it's powered by ChatGPT, maybe it's powered by OpenAI. And it's already able to rephrase my sentences much better, which I think is crazy, right? Think about it. Like it is definitely losing money for them for notion right they're probably paying like 10 cents for each command however this is like so revolutionizing to see those things all happening and ChatGPT, let's not forget it losing estimated three to five million dollars a day so really wondering when they're gonna pull the plug and put it into paid paid mode uh, because i was in the open ai beta and we were paying about 10 cents per api request so not sure how they're bringing profitability but i think it's definitely now they definitely can raise more money at a higher valuation which can probably keep it going for more days. 
Yeah, I don't think they're going to charge to use uh, ChatGPT itself the way it is. I think they're going to really try to ingrain it inside of Microsoft's like uh, search engine itself and try to do something that way there. Because Microsoft never really cared about any one part giving them a lot of profit. They cared about like giving a big bundle that they sell as a subscription, right? And like they'll add something new to the bundle, like before Teams. They'll make Teams on the background, they'll add it to a bundle, and then a year later, they'll make the bundle itself like a price more. I think that's kind of like the play Microsoft might be taking and making this just like part of the office package as like a search thing. But, you know, I agree with the fact that Google makes their money through SEO. Like you know, they make money while you're searching, not once you hit a link that you want. And Google's hardware has never really been the best quality. So I'm honestly not sure like uh, what Google's response can be, but I agree. They probably are the smartest engineers in the background. So it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with. Yeah, I think for my winners, I will say, I think China is winning in 2023. Mm -hmm. I think they were on a losing streak in 2021, 2022, especially with the lockdowns. Now they're going 180 degrees on the direction and they're going for fully embracing lifting restrictions, opening up and producing more, which I think might create a win-win situation because some inflation, some of the inflation that we're happening in North America might be tied to China halting productions, right? And I have some Mm -hmm. family members who are there who are operating, you know, several manufacturing plants. They are able to start in January of this year, which is this month. And they weren't able to start before. So I think inflation might go down in the West. And I believe that China might be the winner um, in terms of the economy growth and GDP. And I think remote work is here to stay. It's my other prediction. My prediction is remote work is here to stay and it's likely here being here for the long term, right? So I think obviously people that we know are going back to the office two days a week, right? But I still feel like remote work is creating so much value. It's not going anywhere. And I think companies will press for more accountability. So it's less likely that quiet quitting is going to happen. I don't see people going to the office for three or four times. No, I definitely agree. I think like, uh, especially at our age and like the next town that's coming in, I think they're so accustomed to like working from home for a majority of their work week that like, if you want the best talent, you're going to have to say, yeah, no, you can work from home for a majority of it. You're not going to be able to kind of have the whole oh, no, five days a week. You have to come in type of mentality anymore for sure. And I think people who work hard at companies will be the winner for 2023. I think layoffs will continue to happen. I think the people who have been working hard for the last two years and who have a good attitude, it's going to survive this wave mm-hmm. of layoffs. And I say that based on personal experience of layoffs at Meta, at you know Google, have people, I know people there who are not laid off after two, three rounds at Amazon as well. So definitely, I think if you have a good attitude, I think you're going to survive 2023. Yeah, in my opinion, okay. unless you, if you pick a startup, then definitely make sure you know how the startup financials are doing. Obviously, don't don't just be in the blind on that. And I will say, normally, I will say startups are a winner because there are more people being laid off from big tech or cannot find a job in big tech. They will be willing to work for startups. I just haven't seen that personally. I think it's really hard to say if that's the case. I think people will join startups when they know that valuations likely to go up. And people will pick those companies because they know their stock options will go up. And now no one's raising no one's able to raise Series A, B, C um, and forward. And their stock value is plummeting. So I don't see Startup being a winner here. I don't think they're winning the talent war. I think people will still go to Google, Facebook, Amazon, not for the stock options, but just for the pay and stability, in my opinion. So I think startups are the loser here, which I, we'll go into the next segment. So the prediction for 2023, is, uh, let's predict who's going to be the biggest loser for 2023. And this might be intuitive, but you know it's definitely a year of unknowns. Before that, Sohan, do you think this year is going to be the same as 2022 last year. Do you think of the economic downturn that we're heading, do you think it's going to head for the worst? Do you think it's going to stay the same? Or do you think it's going to get better when we reach the end? Mm -hmm. I think 
in general, we're starting the transition from like inflation and like a stagflation type of economy. And so I think that's kind of where like 2023 is going to be like uh, majority of it's going to be a lot of stagflation, which means like your purchasing power is getting uh, lower, but like overall the GDP is like kind of like at a standstill. It's not declining itself because I think we are going to be like still like producing as an economy. But overall, and I think that right there is kind of going to be where I transition to my, who my biggest loser is going to be is like just people at the bottom of the food chain, like people at like the lowest class. I think the income inequality is going to kind of rise higher and higher just because during a stagflation period, you're going to see people that at the bottom that they have to spend more of their paycheck on the basic necessities like rent and food and things like that, which means much less money they have for you know, personal stuff they want, you know, like maybe some like, just like the fun spending that you do afterwards as well. So I think those are going to be like some of the biggest, like, uh, losers because income and quality will definitely be, um, getting really bad. And I think also like people that just got really over leveraged during 2020, 2021 are going to get really hurt by what's coming in this economy. Cause I do think that we're going to start slowing down the interest rates, but people are going to get margin calls soon, I think. Like, and I'm sure like a lot of people already have now. So what about you, George? I think SaaS will be a loser in 2023, and it's it's not hard to see the reason. Like you, you know, when COVID first happened in 2020, most companies started to cut their SaaS expenses, right? The non-necessary SaaS expenses, and I feel like SaaS is going to be a loser this year, 100. Mm-hmm. Um, I think no matter if you're a consumer SaaS, let's say your Headspace, a meditation app that charges 10 dollars a month, or if you're on Tinder for charging 10 dollars, 20 dollars a month, I think if you are consumer tech, you're going to suffer um, SaaS. I think mm-hmm. business SaaS will drop further than just consumer tech. Actually, I don't think it will drop as much. I think it will be less impacted than consumer, but I still think it's going to be a big, big, huge loser. As I mentioned in the, in the last segment, I think startups will be a loser in terms of talent. I have not seen people from my close circle go into startups. I have seen startups trying to recruit more people, which, you know, if it works out or not, I have not seen it working out that, that way. That great people are all looking for a safe harbor. Although there's no, not really a safe harbor, as we mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think startups will be a loser, and which we'll also talk about in, in the next segment. I do think startups that are not relying on venture capital is going to be a winner here in, in this year. It's really hard to say. It's already hard to see that, right? Like, for example, like, so um, if you see startups that go out of business, they don't make new cycles, right? Startups that don't work out or replace your CEO, they won't go into new cycles. Only startups that do well are going to be entering a new cycle. And we haven't been seeing those news lately. So yeah. I think the general sentiment is that it's not going well leading to 2023. And it's true that everyone's holding their hands in terms of investing. But if you are a startup that doesn't rely on venture capital, you're literally just producing revenue and you're just asking for be like five or 10 multiples of whatever you're making. And then people will write checks 100%. Like I don't see people not wanting to write checks. But if you are just like idea or if you're like a CC startup and you have to turn a profit to rely on technology, whatever, like those are going on a business 100%. Right. And I see people are trying it, which I appreciate, but I just don't think it's going to work out. So those are my losers for the year. Yeah, like startups that don't need VC funding right now, I think will do well. And that, I think that also includes people that did get the funding beforehand in 2020-2021, but were very smart with like keeping that money or and like understanding that their runway has for like three to five years and they've had that planned out and they've stuck to it. I think like, yeah, the startups that just thought that, yeah, this runway is just unlimited. They can just kind of do whatever they want. Yeah, those ones, like you said, they're probably going out of business. And like ones that need new VC funding now are definitely not going to be able to survive like the interest rates that are coming up and things like that. Because yeah, people are only going to write checks now if they see like a path to profitability. I don't think people are writing checks for growth anymore. 
Yeah. And I think VCs will be loser too. If you're a VC and your name is not Andreessen, your name is not Sequoia, more of the big names, you're likely a loser, especially if you came out new. Uh, I think mm -hmm. LPs, limited partners who put money into those funds, I think they're just super tired of full promises from the VC, VC investors, oh, sorry, like major capitalists. I think they're just super tired of it and they're not really committing capital going to this year. So we'll see that the best VCs will do best. They'll still be able to raise super mega like rounds and funds, but we will see smaller ones die out or even medium ones die out. They will just not raise their second or third, third or fourth funds, which is essentially meaning it's not going to work out. They won't yeah. go out of business through a fund, right? But um, so I, I predict that small, medium sized VCs will become losers this year as well. So let's talk about the topic that we just mentioned. Let's go into some news items. So Tesla, as we mentioned, lost 65% in value from its recent highs in 2022. And I think it's just super important to know that Elon Musk has also lost $200 billion of his own personal net worth. And I think this all happened in a month. I think most of the drops happened in the month of late November to late December. So um, what's your mm -hmm. first take when you heard this news? Yeah, no, I think the fact that it happened mainly in like late November and early December, as like an accountant, I can kind of say that's probably the only positive news that Elon has about this is because that means a lot of their policies were tax loss harvesting for like in the end of the year. So I don't think like that. So I think Tesla, like, you know, like starting in the next couple of weeks could go up from that. But overall, just like, yeah, the huge decline in Tesla, I think it's just because shareholders just lost faith in Elon. Like they just think that he's spending too much time on Twitter. And for better or worse, I think Elon's put all his eggs in the Twitter basket right now, like right now SpaceX, the boring, what the million things that Elon had going on, like he's kind of put all of that on hold just to like get Twitter, like to start running again. Right. So it's going to be crazy to see what Tesla does because Tesla kind of changed the market for electric vehicles too, which was somebody which like a segment I think is still going to do good in 2023 and onwards, especially with like the Russia Ukraine war that we we're talking about. Like people definitely want to switch to EV as fast as possible with like, newer and newer incentives not to be reliant on oil and gas. Mm -hmm. And I think people really should give Twitter's ex-CEO more credits. I think his name is Raga Argawa. I think that's yeah. his name. I think people need to give him more credits about constructing the deal, right? Either Elon pays a billion dollars or he has to buy the company. Right? A billion dollars in terms of break fees or he has to mm -hmm. pay the whole package. And I think they were really aggressive. That's why they got fired the first day mm -hmm. of them taking over. I think he genuinely did a good job in terms of his duties as the for the shareholders. I think everyone get a payday. If you're a shareholder at Twitter, you get paid, you don't have to worry about debt. And I think Elon unfortunately got into a bad situation um for Twitter. But like so um, would you pay the one billion break fee uh, if you were Elon? Would you pay that one billion break fee knowing what he's getting himself into now? What would you do? Like I mean like hindsight's twenty twenty, like if he paid that one million dollar fee, like, you know, he probably could have bought Twitter again like later on if he was still like passionate about the project, right? Like at that time, Twitter kind of did sink as a stock. Too. That was a big reason why he was trying to exit, right? Like it went to, I think, almost like 36 billion market cap. And he was trying to buy it for 44. Like that was his offering. Overall, I think it, what was done was done. And it's fine because he got the funding and everything. And yeah, I agree. Part of definitely like, you know, stuck by shareholders. They got an extra 8 billion of like uh, market value for all of them. You know, like he got like a nice payday. I think he knew he was getting fired regardless because Elon still already owned 10% of Twitter. So... He still could have like pushed for you know CEO to be uh, kicked out like regardless. So I think overall, I think Park played it well with what was like left after Elon kind of played all his cards. Park didn't have a lot of options, and he definitely took the the one that gave him the best out basically. 
Yeah. And what do you think, since we're on a 2023 train, like what's going to happen in this like Musk, Twitter, Tesla saga? Like where we're at the end of this, like what's going to happen? I know it's a hard prediction, but let's give it a try. That's probably the hardest prediction we've had. I think overall, like it's seeming like Twitter's starting to stabilize a little bit too. Like we're seeing like newer and newer features getting added all the time. Like I I really like, I don't know if you saw like the views count that Twitter has now. Mm. You can kind of see the amount of engagement that every single one of your tweets has. Again, like tweets are pretty easy to send out versus like a YouTube video. So now being able to see like the views you get, like uh, the reach you're having is really cool. I think like Twitter's starting to add a lot of new features. So I think Twitter will do well for 2023 as just a company. I think like Elon is getting that path of profitability. And after Q1, Elon can pro- probably go back to Tesla and start like focusing on that and everything like that. Because I think he's spending way too much time on Twitter. That I think is the biggest thing that he has to fix up is just he has a company that at one point was almost worth a trillion dollars. That's up with like 300 billion market cap now. Like, he has to fix that, right? Like he has to go back to Tesla and renew shareholders like faith in the company that Elon's still dedicated to the cause. I'm really hoping that he does do that because I think like Elon put all his uh, eggs in Twitter and I do hope he succeeds with this. Yeah. My thought is that I think he will unfortunately lose the majority of his investments in Twitter. Oh. I, that's my prediction. I don't think it will be out of it. Obviously, I think he will lose the majority of it. I do think there are many buyers potential who wants to buy Twitter. And as much as I don't have to say there are certain foreign governments or even the U.S. government might be interested in purchasing this company. So there's definitely enough buyers for him to shop around. But at the current valuation, there's just not going to be people who are willing to put up a lot of money to buy it. Right. Like Twitter as a platform still has influence. It's still where many people spend their days every day. It's kind of like YouTube, if you think about it in some ways. Mm -hmm. Right. Like YouTube is like where people spend a lot of their days a day just watching videos and stuff. Twitter is more like people just commenting each other, see news, read things. Both those platforms have issues of monetizing. I just don't see how it can make money from Twitter Blue. I think making money from advertising is the way to go. Although I just don't see how he can turn that around as of this moment. More usage doesn't mean that it's going to produce more revenue. It's just as simple as that, right? Like that's just the way it is. And I feel like my prediction is that he will lose the majority of his investment. I think he'll go back to Tesla. I think the Tesla stock is going to go up mm-hmm. by the end of this year. I think it's going to go up a lot more than we think. I can't predict a number, obviously, but I think maybe at a normal level we're seeing now, maybe even more before the peak. So that's my prediction. And I think he will not be CEO. I think we'll end up that, but I think someone else is going to run it. They might have more layoffs. And I just feel like he's getting distracted. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you. I, I don't think running a social media company is worth uh, his time. Yeah. Or anyone's time. Or anyone who, who's running a tech business who wants to run Twitter. It's a very different business. Advertisers will not stand with you if you you know touch some lines on, on certain things. So I wouldn't want to be CEO of that company uh, for sure. So that's my prediction yeah. for it. No, I definitely agree. I think being CEO of Twitter takes a lot of like skill on like navigating, you know, like politics, free speech, and like how you say things. It's, I think it's just the one of the most complicated businesses to be a CEO of. Yeah, and you don't really see that. So now we can see how YouTube is, how difficult it is around YouTube and Facebook and maybe mm-hmm. even TikTok. So that's interesting. Let's get to our next topic, which I think is super important. It is founders stepping down as CEOs at startup companies. And it has become a trend, which I obviously, a few episodes ago, we talked about Pipe.com, founders stepping down. And it could be for various reasons, obviously, but I think there are many more companies, CEOs are stepping down. From what I'm seeing, like my personal experience with a few CEOs, they are stepping down from their post. They're becoming an executive chairman or chairman. And some of their co-founders, or in some cases, chief of staff, 
is stepping up to become CEOs. I won't name the names. I don't think it's fair to name the names. But do you think this has become a trend for 2023, especially on the second half? Sometimes I was just talking to my co-founder this morning, and we were just both thinking, oh, it's a pity that people have been running a company for, it's, it's very sad. People have been running companies for six, seven years, and now they have to step down because maybe their company's going to zero. Maybe they're just lost. Like they don't want to work on it anymore. Maybe they're just burnouts. What are your thoughts about why people are quitting on the job as CEO? Yeah, no, I think that's something that's concerning for sure. Like, I think, George, you have a lot more experience being on the actual startup side than me. But overall, like just somebody that's like looking at it from like a glass eye view, it's kind of concerning the fact that, you know, before, like, you know, people were like serial entrepreneurs, like they were excited about like, oh, getting their project up and running and like just keep building that out. Like, it seems now a lot of founders are starting to become a little more scared. And I think that's kind of like an indication of the headwinds that are coming or like the overall economy itself. And yeah, I think it always starts at the bottom, right? Like the startups are going to be the first ones that either go like, you know, like bankrupt. We're not going to see Google go bankrupt first. So founders not being as confident to be able to run their own like company, their own vision is definitely something I think is like pretty concerning. What about you, George? I really want to see the reasons for the outs. My guess Mm -hmm. is that they want to be out themselves, right? They're they're definitely like, if you're a venture-backed startup, then there are two ways. One is that your investors, your board pushed it out, right? Or you want to step down yourself, knowing how the early stage startup works, I, I will assume it's because they want to step on themselves. So that will become um, a pretty concerning trend, like a red flag in a way, right? Because if you're mm-hmm. a founder of a company, you, tr- you create this company from scratch, and now you're leaving a CEO and you can become chairman. But that's just window dressing, in my opinion. Like they're just becoming chairman of an empty company. So I think those ships are going down, right? And I think if you're an investor, if you're a VC investor in a company whose CEO just stepped down or the founder, right? you're probably going to write that down as zero. Like, it's hard to see how it comes to zero. I don't think you're coming down to zero, but as a venture capital investor, those companies are going to zero, right, unfortunately. And, you know, I created two companies. One of the founders who stepped down is one of my competitors. So we've actually known each other for a long time. We're not hostile or anything. It just, uh, but still, like, it feels, wow, it feels like, wow, okay, this person that, you know, when I started creating my first company, Simple Direct, uh, we were competing with them for a lot of our customers. So now see, seeing him stepping down, definitely feel sad. Yeah, definitely feel sad about it. Like, so would you say those are going to zero? Those companies are going to zero? Or what, what are your thoughts? I think in general, like the companies that go to zero are not going to be just the ones that, or like the founders step down. I think it's going to be a lot. Like I keep kind of like saying the same thing or the ones that like prioritize cash flow and like understanding that, hey, this is how much cash we can get by the end of this week. And this is how much we need to like pay our employees, pay the rent, keep the lights on, all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, once I just took that into account as well, those are the ones that are not going to go to zero, I think, overall. But if you didn't think about that, I think a lot of founders realize that they didn't think about that runway for enough time. And they might be trying to like take like an easier way out for now. So I definitely do see some of these companies being able to go to zero. Okay. And I think it's a concerning trend. I think it's going to continue in 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, we said in the last episode, it doesn't seem like there's an ending in sight, which is concerning. Yeah, let's go to our next topic, which is similar. So I was browsing TechCrunch this morning. Uh, it has an article about fintech predictions and opportunities for 2023, which is very interesting because on this show, we talk about many fintech founders. Um, so I really wanted to just get this in and get your get your thoughts. The article says, let's first take a look at a sector is likely to be the most challenging, which I, I will just say, they don't want to say it, but it's a losers, right? For 2023, for fintech. Mm-hmm. Lenders, online lenders, neobanks, and fintechs that serve SMBs. So let's break that down 
one by one uh, lenders. So online lenders, for my company, Simple Direct, we work with lenders. We help people get financing from online lenders and they're becoming the biggest losers. So what do you think? So um, do you agree with that sentiment? Online lenders seem to be biggest losers? Yeah, it's just becoming more and more, the lenders have to become more picky now. And uh, like if you're a lender, you're making money by giving out your capital. And if you have to become much more picky on who you're giving your capital to, like it's going to become like harder for you to be able to make money. If the interest rates are so high, like you're expecting, uh, for example, like last year you were able to like give a hundred dollars at 2% to 10 different people. Now you have about 50 bucks. You can, and you have to give it for like seven and a half, eight percent, right? Like there's going to be less people that can even afford to take that money on. It's just going to become a lot more complicated process now just because like delinquency rates are going to be going up now for sure, 110%. Yeah, and I feel like it's a yesterday once more for 2020, because mm-hmm. in 2020, the strange thing is, as I was operating Simple Direct, I thought, okay, the lenders will have a big impact. However, in 2020, they didn't have a big impact. I think because the Fed kind of saved them from basically collapsing because interest rate went down very fast. We're not seeing that at least last year and this year, and some of the lenders uh, likely are going out of business. So I think that's a huge thing. So I definitely agree they will become the biggest losers. Um, mm-hmm. and, you kind of, and you kind of can come to a conclusion from looking at 2022 and nothing's going to change this year, likely. So I agree with that. The second thing they said is neobanks. Neobanks transform customer experiences by offering better digital products and lower costs, right? It says that many neobanks have customers with small average deposit balances. And deposits are critical to a banking business in the long run, right, in terms of how they make money. Some neobanks, I know they charge monthly fee. Some neobanks, I know they're doing something else. We just had Michael on the show two episodes ago who are running a neobank. So um, what's your thoughts on neobanks being the loser for 2023? That's TechCrunch's prediction. I think that one's a little bit more of a tricky one just because of the fact that overall, neobanks, they're going to make their money by like how much deposits you have in the bank itself, right? Because that's how they can like then like lend out other money, things like that. So if like the average user has less and less deposits in their bank account, like, yeah, obviously like, neobanks are going to be more at risk. And so I think like the really small neobanks would get hurt just because of the fact that the higher inflation gets, the higher all this gets, companies are going to start having to lay off people. And like once your unemployment starts rising, what ends up happening is you dip into your savings. If you're unemployed, you still have to pay rent. Like that doesn't just like stop. You still have to keep your lights on. You have to feed your family. And so if all of that stuff is still happening, like you have your money in the neobank for most likely those deposits, your savings are dwindling down and down. There's no income inflow, only outflows, right? So neobanks, I think only would be um, affected if we see like the economy start to turn really downwards and like to the point where unemployment starts rising at a really high level. But if that doesn't happen, I think overall neobanks might even do a little bit better just because, you know, like what 2020 showed us is people are not like our generation. We're starting to get more and more wealth and we're kind of okay without a physical bank. Mm -hmm. And so... Even the smaller neobanks, I think like people our age and like younger ones that are like growing up in 2023 and onwards are willing to take that risk with small neobanks. So I think overall, unless unemployment starts hitting a really high record, they might not be as like big losers as kind of what's predicted, in my opinion, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just from like, actually, I tried to open a neobank myself and I know actually many people in the neobank business space. I feel like the challenge really is like the biggest new banks, like, for example, like Chime, the Current, I think they will survive 100%. They raise enough cash. They're okay. But if you look at the companies that are, have gone public, so Dave.com is one of the companies that went public. And I think it's down 99% from a year ago. It's lost a lot of money, right? And Dave is like the competitor for 
Chime. So if Chime goes public, is that what's going to happen? I think likely so. And let's say Moneyline is another company that's a neobank that essentially went down 98% or so, or so as well. So I think people are really cautious about neobanks not making money. For the listeners who don't know, Dave is basically a neobank that gives you 50 or $100 in terms of give you more balance if you connect your bank account and direct deposits. So it gives you free overdrafts, right? And it's really challenging because I think their EBITDA is negative. Um, so I just think it's not making money. So they're kind of a combination of online lenders and a neobank. Maybe it's because the online lender part is more like took them down more. But, you know, looking at money line, it's just another simple uh, neobank business. So so personally, I think I agree with the article. I think neobanks will become the biggest losers. I do think there are some neobanks that really make sense. But I think the majority is that I have seen at least at least 2021. I haven't seen any in 2022 myself. I wasn't that interested. I just don't think they'll be staying alive. Mm-hmm. I think there will be more consolidation happening 100%. So I kind of agree with that. So I'm like, what's your thought? It's about like consumer versus B2B neobanks. Like which ones are you more optimistic about? I think overall like bank like B2B banks would definitely do a little bit better just because on the consumer side, you don't see as much like protection. Like, you know, like business to business, we'd usually see some sort of like a recovery plan. Like because when you file for bankruptcy, you can you'll definitely get some kind of collateral. If like a B2B, like whoever your customer was that you lent out that money to or and stuff like that, you can get something back. Consumers usually, you know, like if you didn't have like any collateral on them. You're not going to be able to get as much on them. So like if you assume a similar default rate from both as well, you'll just end up getting more collateral from like a business that you're lending out to than from like a consumer. And so I think overall, like the consumer side would be a little bit less, would be a lot less, I think, in terms of ROI. Okay. I think so. Let's go into the most interesting and last segment, which I think you're very experienced in. Let's talk about the economy going into Mm -hmm. 2023. I think everyone I've been talking to in tech or otherwise, they all predicted a recession this year so is that what you're seeing and how will inflation go and how would the, everything else like everyday people feel how will that change yeah i think we kind of hit on this a little bit in terms of the biggest losers i think overall at the very least if we don't see a recession now we're still going to see like a recession essentially is just two uh quarters of like you know like negative gdp growth we might see like a stagflation where it's like the gdp kind of stays uh stagnant like you don't see anything like dropping we don't see anything increasing either and so in a situation like that, what's happening is like the people that are going to be the biggest losers, like we mentioned, were going to be the people like at the bottom. Like, and from that, what I'm going to say is like, I just think the income inequality is definitely going to stay, keep rising. And what that's going to kind of do is like we talked about this before in terms of like, inflation overall like, is kind of like hitting a peak. I think like the Fed is starting to control that. And so what ends up happening now is prices aren't going to go down. Like if now McDonald's is charging $3 for their junior chicken, they're not just going to randomly just say, okay, now it's $2 and like keep it at $2, which means like now the cost of living for the lowest people, that people that are barely making a living wage, it's still going to be that $3 for, right? So the people at the top, they'll still be able to like survive everything like that. And they'll be having the money to start investing as well. Whereas people at the bottom now just going to have to spend too much of their capital on like their everyday necessities. And what that's going to do to the overall economy, like, you know, like, each of these transactions, what's going to happen, like the velocity of capital that's going out is just going to slow down because you can see such a large population just not being able to spend as much on frivolous things. Like, you know, like Christmas shopping is going to go down. Like we just have Christmas, right? Like next year's Christmas might be like a lot less gifts and things like that. That's going to hit the small businesses. Like small and mid-sized businesses are going to be the ones that are the biggest hit as well, like I think overall. Yeah, I do want to ask a question many of our viewers probably are thinking about as well. So why is the unemployment number still relatively low 
when we're in a recession, usually unemployment number shocks really high spikes, like 2020, which is like, of course, a special occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, why hasn't it grown this much uh, this year or late next uh, last year? I think what we've kind of seen, like the market we're in right now is a little bit different than what's been kind of like historically. We see that like even the S&P 500, it's been so overtaken by tech, like uh, the S&P as a percentage. Tech is such a large percentage of it now in terms of like market cap and things like that. So overall, like the definition of recession and like other economic downturn, it is hitting that for sure. But when it comes to like other type of business, like industrials or like, for example, like uh, in like financial services, like those bigger companies, they have not been affected as of now as nearly as much as tech has, right? Because tech is the one that's had like the biggest hit. And so that's why it, overall in terms of unemployment numbers, like McDonald's is still running about the same as it was three, four years ago, maybe even a little bit better. Costco is still going great. The banks, like in terms of like the big banks, like for us, like TD or CABC, like that's still going good. So you're not seeing unemployment in the other sectors of the economy. And like, for example, energy and defense actually has risen like I think 40-ish percent this year alone, right? So there are other sectors that are keeping it up as well. So I think that's going to be a big reason why like unemployment, the rate itself hasn't gone up a lot at all. Okay. And do you see that trend continue for the next couple of months? Yeah, I think in terms of those sectors, there isn't as much of a headwind in terms of um, hurting it. I don't want to jinx anything like that, but it doesn't seem like those um, sectors are going to be as affected up until if we do see more straight hikes, which I don't think is going to happen then it might get hit on it. But or else it seems like we're starting to stabilize the inflation. And the main thing is just going to be that people are going to be able to spend less. But the overall like companies itself are going to be fine. There isn't going to be as much unemployment unless something drastic happens. Okay, that's great information. Uh, we'll definitely revisit in a couple of weeks or a couple of months to see where we are in the economy. I think mm-hmm. many of our listeners would like to know as well, because this is not just a U.S. event, Canada event. It is a global event, right? Anything happening with the economy it impacts people around the world with, uh, where our listeners are based. So thank you so much for a great episode. I think we definitely touched on many th- great things. I feel like so energetic after coming back from the holidays <laughs> about doing the episode and stuff. So it's, it's definitely been great. How are, how are you feeling after the break? Yeah, no, like I think this episode is actually a lot of fun. Just like being able to like, talk and like kind of like look back on the year kind of as like a little reflection. And um, I think that always helps when it comes to like uh, looking at your future portfolio investments or kind of like how you want to play. But yeah, I think it was a great episode. Okay. Thank you, Swam. And for our listeners, just a little preview. We're looking about expanding the podcast a lot bigger. So you'll definitely hear from us or other co-hosts more often. If you have any thoughts or if you want to be featured, definitely reach out to the description. There is my contact information. Definitely reach out and we'll definitely talk. So thank you, Swam. And thank you for our listeners. We'll talk again next week.